Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 310. One thing I learned early on as a reporter was never to pretend you know anything you don't. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Do you know the best way to protect your vehicle, both the exterior and interior, is with a car cover? I've been using Covercraft car covers since 1975. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. 2015 marks Covercraft's 50th anniversary. They've manufactured premium quality exterior and interior covers here in the United States with a reputation for durability and design. They're the world's largest manufacturer of custom patterned vehicle covers that are crafted to fit with over 80,000 patterns and growing. You can choose from dozens of fabric options and accessories, all designed and carefully sewn for your special vehicle. Made in the USA, Covercraft is the right choice. I've protected my special rides with their covers for over 40 years, and you should too. Learn more today at Covercraft.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Wallace Weiss. Wallace, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I sure am. All right, great to have you here. Wallace Weiss is a fine artist, an automotive historian, car design commentator, radio broadcaster on AutoTalk, and advertising copywriter. He's the author of 10 Automotive Histories and his latest book, Way Beyond Barn Finds, the story behind Smokey Eunuch's boss Mustang, includes 49 other entertaining true tales from the world of rare and exotic car collecting. He's an ace barn finder himself, tracking down rare Rolls Royces, Bentleys, Porsches, and more. And this book is number three in his barn find series, and includes incredible stories of adventure and reminds us that those dream barn finds are still out there to be discovered. Wallace will be at the Concorso Italiano in Monterey this year as a vendor selling books and art. So Wallace, I told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a moment and share a little bit more about your career and your passion for automobiles? Okay. I think it's best to say that I started out in Detroit. Uh, my father was an auto worker. I think he even worked at the uh, Ford plant, the famous one with the uh, seven smokestacks and uh, the Rouge. It's called the Rouge. Yeah. He worked there in the 30s, and he liked cars but didn't really know one uh, classic car from another. And I, my interest was kind of mild in that. And then when I was going to college, I was interested in poetry and art but then one day i happened across a british magazine called autosport and it had an article on the iso griffo a3c an italian racing car with a corvette engine and i got so excited by that one picture i said to heck with poetry i'm gonna be a car fanatic <laughs> but i still continued for art for about a year but then uh, when an opportunity came up at an ad agency for an artist and a writer, and they said, we filled the artist slot. I said, oh, okay, I'm a writer. And then I became an ad copywriter. And when I graduated journalism, I went into advertising and wrote ads for Camaros and Corvettes during the original muscle car era. And ironically, I lived next to Woodward Avenue. So when mm. I would be trying to sleep at night, I'd hear 
these people, oh, first gear, oh, second gear. So <laughs> in a way, I got into that whole car culture. And then uh, I worked in advertising for three years and then came out to California to work for Motor Trend Magazine. Uh-huh. And then after working for them for a few years, then I went on my own as an independent ah, car author. Well, and you also got involved in art later on as well, right? Yeah, that was a, an odd circumstance. Like I went for 30 or 40 years without making a single drawing or painting. And then when I published this book, actually my publisher was Wisconsin, they published a book mine called Shelby, The Man, The Cars, The Legend, mm. about Carol Shelby. And then one day I thought, I'm going to make a painting, a portrait of Carol Shelby, so if I have a book signing, I can have that behind me. And when I went to this Beverly Hills car show, I sold the book to somebody, and I said, you know, I got a painting of Carol Shelby. You want to see it? And he said, yes. And so the car was six blocks away. So during a long walk back, I thought, I had to learn how to make prints because if I make a painting, I can only sell one. But if I make prints, I could sell many. So then (laughs) I became a printmaker. And so now I, I make many prints. I even paint the pictures in my book because I've had trouble dealing with photographers haggling endlessly to get one little picture. So finally I thought, well, the heck with this, I'm going to make my own painting of the car. <laughs> Very cool. Very innovative. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more as we move through the questions here about this book, Way Beyond Barn Finds. But first, as we continue on your journey, I always like to start by asking my guest for a success quote, some kind of mantra or saying that's been instrumental in forming your life. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? So Wallace, take the wheel. I think in life, you many times your path crosses with somebody who some significant person who will say just one line that sticks in your memory and one time i was in a bookstore in hollywood and there was a young man there in an all-white suit signing his first book and that was the writer tom wolf oh my gosh the one who wrote the right stuff and all that but that was his first book and it was about custom cars called the Candy Colored Tangerine Flake Streamlined Baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I back then, nobody knew who he was. So I said, hey, you want to go to lunch? And so we went to lunch in Sunset Strip. And I said, how did you ever embed yourself with this NASCAR team when obviously you're a refined gentleman of Virginia type? And he said, one thing I learned early on as a reporter was never to pretend you know anything you don't. Mm. So he didn't approach this Junior Johnson NASCAR team and said, I, I know all about cars. He went to him and said, I don't know anything about cars, but do you mind if I come along with you to the race? <laughs> and so then he became a part of their team. And so I've tried to remember that because many times when I'm interviewing people about their cars, sometimes when I look back, I say, oh, I should have not talked myself so much about what I know about their car. I should have said, I don't know anything. Tell me about the significance of this car. So in other words, I tell myself to shut up and listen, and then I learn a lot more, and they get more pleasure out of telling me about their car, and I learn more. So that's the one line I try and remember is don't pretend you know anything you don't. Very cool. I love that. And wow, to meet Tom Wolf way back when, that is something. I believe he also wrote the book The Pump House Gang about some— uh, Oh, yeah, and he wrote three books about the art world, too. And, you know, he even rec- he only met me that one day, but he even recommended me for a newspaper job later, which I didn't take. And then he also 
arranged a meeting between me and the editor Esquire, but I don't think I was ready to write for Esquire then. But so many times I've just been walking around and run across really famous celebrities and had a conversation sometimes that led to something. So yeah, always be open to those opportunities. Absolutely. And I think the other great word you said there were shut up and listen. Uh, so many times people just don't do a very good job listening and you can learn so much more. Fantastic story. I love that. Would you share a story with me that instigated your passion for cars? You talk about your dad working at the Ford plant and living next to that very famous boulevard, but is there a pivotal moment in your life that you can remember when you really realized you were a car guy? Was it when you picked up that magazine or was there another time? I grew up in those northwest suburbs of Detroit and all my neighbors, I would say 70% of them worked in the car industry. Like Pete Estes, the vice president of Chevrolet, he was down the street. And of course, as they moved up through the ranks, they moved away from our neighborhood to Bloomfield Hills or Birmingham. But, you know, my father would always say, oh, you got you to gotta meet our neighbor there. He's, he's vice president so-and-so. So I was kind of inspired, like, oh, I'm, I'm with a group that's really going places. But then I would say as far as car enthusiasts, I would go to things like Greenfield Village, which is part of Henry Ford Museum, or maybe it's the other way around, but uh, see many different classic cars there. Then I would go to downtown Detroit Library, has a special automotive history section. So just little by little, I added to my knowledge. But ironically, some of the things I, subjects I pursued then, or cars, I, I didn't come in contact with them till 40 or 50 years later. I would remember, oh yeah, back in 1962, I read this article. So mm -hmm. it all kind of ties together. Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, what I'd love to do now, Wallace, is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down. And as I say, crawl under the hood, get our hands a little dirty here, and ask you to share a huge challenge or a great failure that you've faced along the way in your career. But the most important part of this question has to do with how did you overcome that particular situation? And even better, what did it teach you? What did you learn from it? As a beginning writer, you know, I tried to reach different publishing companies and I didn't, I didn't, wasn't very astute at reading contracts. And I think I published two books in England that other than the initial down payment, they call it the advance against royalties. I never got paid anything. So I realized that uh, you shouldn't be so eager to write something that that you don't pay attention to the business aspects. In fact, one of my books is even called Day Tomasa Automobiles uh, that I published in England. That publisher just gave away the book to some other company. So there's actually a pirate edition of my book oh, gosh. Out, out and about uh, and there's nothing I can do about it. It's like probably the royalties wouldn't be worth going to court over. Right. But anyhow, I learned how to be a self-publisher. I mean, fortunately, as I was progressing as a reporter, all these other things came available to the public, the Internet and and uh, self-printing, uh, self-publishing. So I actually became a publisher and published my own books. I'm not currently publishing them because I'd rather be doing the reporting and the digging for facts. than uh, And also, if you guess wrong, you end up with a whole warehouse full of books. Uh, so, yes. <laughs> so that can be a liability. In fact, I published a book with 
two friends, and one of the friends keeps complaining uh, that he's paying the storage on this book. But fortunately, we priced the book so high at $60 a piece that when we do sell one, it's just a nice little reward for storing them. Yeah, well, it's a great lesson for those entrepreneurs out there, people listening who perhaps want to get into journalism or writing books or art or anything, any facet of business is read the contract. And if you don't understand the words in those contracts, get some help from somebody. Because one thing I've learned over the years, contracts are not written for you. They're written for the person presenting you with the contract. There's very little in that contract that's going to protect you. It's all about the other guy presenting the contract. So if you can't read it, you don't understand it, get some help. Let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share one of those career aha moments. I like to say it's when the headlights come on and illuminate your way for a new idea or a new direction you had. And tell us the steps you took to turn your aha moment into a success. I would only count this as a partial success, but it could happen again. Uh, one of my books I was talking about before, Shelby, the Man, the Car's a Legend, out of the blue, uh, this uh, Hollywood producer contacted me and said, we would like to option the right to buy the book, say some price like $100,000, but we won't pay you the 100000 now. We just want to be first in line if we decide to buy it. So they paid a few thousand for three years. But at the beginning, I was, uh, you know, razzled, dazzled because the other two companies involved in England were famous companies uh, like uh, involved with Ridley Scott, the producer and all that. And they were going to make like a, a racing biography. But then after a while, they never got back in touch with me. And I think they've either that Hollywood part of the three company deal kind of disappeared and the other two companies went out to do their things. I never heard from them again. But ironically, I myself kind of wonder like how good a story it would make because every time there's a new car racing movie, like the latest one was called Rush, I rush to see it. But then I'm always so disappointed that I think, now I'm a car guy and I didn't even like this movie. So I don't know how the general public is going to like this car racing movie. And and then I think about back the first car racing movie I ever saw when I was a little kid was The Big Wheel with Mickey Rooney. And recently <laughs> I got a chance to see it again. And I thought, now this is a better racing movie than all the ones I've seen since. It's got more story. But I realized, so I don't feel so bad that they passed on my book because uh, it's such a challenge to bring something so esoteric as car racing to the screen oh, yeah. for, for the general public. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's been a challenge over the years. You go back to Grand Prix and Le Mans. Those films have something very different about them and the way they approached it. Now they've become somewhat iconic classics, if you will. The storylines behind some of them are kind of goofy, but uh, the racing scenes are kind of cool. And I agree with you. Rush wasn't what I, the rush I hoped it would have been. Uh, it was somewhat enjoyable, but uh, I wish somebody could figure out a way to go out and do it. I think there's a balance between making the car guys in us happy, us true blue car guys who know all of it, and the rest of the public and their perception of racing and cars. But uh, yeah, definitely an interesting situation. How about proudest career moments? I would assume you've had many, but is there one in particular you could share with us? When I go to events and I do book signings, and then then I uh, can meet the the people that are in the books. Oh, and uh, yeah. I mean, I, when I actually meet a real 
designer that designed one of the cars in my book. So I find that really interesting. Well, it's uh, it's really fun when you run across people like that. And you were kind enough to send me your recent book, the one we're talking about today. And one of my favorite chapters in there was chapter 40. It was about Bill Gates, Porsche 959, and the, the story behind that car. Because the stories behind that car and all the stories you've written about have run around for so many years. They've been convoluted and changed. And who knows what's true and what's not true. So uh, that's what I find fun about your book. And that must be rewarding when you actually meet the people that you've written about, uh, designers, uh, stars, drivers, and all of that. So uh, very cool. Well, well, one thing I could say about my approach to this subject is that uh, it's true that a lot of these stories have been around for years. For instance, in the next book, I have a story about the lady that was uh, buried in her Ferrari. <laughs> you know, it's almost kind of urban myth. But now I've researched it and I found out it was true. But uh, a lot of the other cars, now that one wasn't a case of buying and selling the car, but a lot of the other cars, I've, I'll find a story in the Internet and it'll be all these details. But then the reporters are being so are pussyfooting around what the person paid for the car when they bought it. And that that's actually what motivated me to kind of uh, set the pattern for my books as I try and home in on that number because what good does it do to have a five-page story in road and track or car and driver on some classic car, which they very rarely have classic cars, but then they talk about, oh, now it's a $10 million car and all that, but they never mention what the original barn finder paid for it. Well, to me, there's there's a reward, should be a reward on, on earth, not just in heaven for you going to all the trouble to find this car and we want to know what that number is and so i have like each book has 50 cars in it i have maybe 60 cars lined up for the next book but just like indy qualifying you can only have 33 cars on the grid <laughs> i will bounce cars out if i can't find close to that number because it's a great kick to me like in the next book, there's a drug dealer that had a Ferrari 250 GTO. He paid 250000 for it, but now it's worth $52 million. Right. So yeah. I like that, that ratio between bought and potential sales price. So that, that's kind of my motivation is to take the story that the other reporters didn't go all the way and go that last mile. Very cool. I love it. Let's have a little bit of fun here. What was your first really special vehicle, a car that you'd maybe wanted to have for a long time or something you, you acquired that you're really happy about? And tell us maybe a memory you have with that vehicle. Well, I'm only happy about it when I bought it but uh, because <laughs> I sold it too soon. But I went from a 55 Chevy, which I got for $200, to a Mercedes Gullwing when I became advertising man. And then I was visiting a GM designer, and he had this Gullwing, but it was all apart. So I didn't want to buy it because it was all apart. And I said, well, don't you know anybody else that has one? He said, well, when I was in college, my roommate and his father bought two of them. And I said, what's his phone number? And here it is, 15 or 20 years since he went to college. But he gave me the phone number, and I called the guy up, and he said, yeah, I have it. And I said, well, I want to buy it. And the only trouble is I was in the Army Reserve in active duty, and I got paid $50 a month. Hmm. So I sent my $50 a month for a few months and then went up to Canada and paid the rest. And so I drove that car for uh, a year or so, but the main problem was in Michigan, 
in the winter time, I didn't have any place to put it, so I ended up selling it for twenty five hundred. Oh. So now, I, when I go buy them at car shows and hear they're million dollars, I wince a little bit. But uh, yeah. I don't, I don't feel as bad as the guy in my latest book who bought the Gullwing and then sold it and then found out after he sold it that it was the winner of Le Mans in 52. Because uh, yes. that car's worth about $10 million. Yeah, yeah. Wow, well, that's quite a jump from a 55 Chev to a Gullwing. And you may have already answered my next question, and that is, is there a vehicle that you've owned that you really wish you could have back in the garage? Is it that Gullwing, or is there uh, another one? Uh, well, that one that one was real finicky to keep running. I actually owned a second Gullwing later, which I sold for 11000 so at least you could say I'm moving up. <laughs> but uh, my Ferrari 365 GTC4, that was kind of a luxury Ferrari with six carburetors, four camshafts, four seats, and a very genteel, exquisite styling, not brute not a brute like the Daytona. It was related to the Daytona, but it was more the gentleman's Daytona. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, wow. and I, I missed that. But the problem was back when I owned that, like 15 or 20 years ago, I had these Italian mechanics who would fix it very cheaply and, uh, you know, kind of like cash under the table, no, no bill on what's to be done in your car. You just bring it in and you go pick it up and you say, is it okay? He's okay. You go. You know, they would even have me race up and down La Brea Avenue at 7,000 RPM in second gear and just hear by the engine sound if it was running okay. Wow. You know, here, here's a crowded neighborhood. They wanted me to go down the street, you know. Yeah, but I don't have those mechanics anymore, and it's a, it's a different time now. Of course, yeah, so. absolutely. Well, <laughs> fantastic. You know, I usually at this point ask about current projects. Do you have anything going on that excites you? But I'd like to, to go back to your book and give it a little bit more attention. What is it about Way Beyond Barn Finds that uh, really excited you? Can you share something with our listeners that would entice them to go pick up a copy of this book? I often get this feedback, people initially, when I, when you hear, when I say the word barn find, right away people say, all the good ones have been found. They're they're always grumpy about it because they've missed out on them, but they think, oh, well, you couldn't possibly find a Porsche 356 Speedster now. They're over 100,000. You couldn't find one. But even as I drive down the street every day, I keep my eyes peeled. And, and I was in a, a tough neighborhood called San Bernardino. Now the corner of my eye, I saw an XKE Jaguar. Those are climbing up toward 100,000. And then I stopped, and it was an upholstery shop, and the guy said, yeah, we're storing this for the owner. Well, he didn't say they were for sale, but it's a kind of neighborhood, a rough neighborhood, where somebody probably salted them away but doesn't have the money to restore it. And then two months later, I'm going down the street in Riverside, and I see a two-door Rolls, kind of like a silver cloud. I couldn't tell from the back whether it's a Rolls or a Bentley because it didn't have the emblem. And I couldn't get around to the front, but I knew right away if it's two-door, that means it's coach-built, probably aluminum-bodied. It's probably worth like fifty to a hundred thousand, depending on who owned it before, maybe some celebrity. So what I'm saying is, they're all around you, especially in Southern California. And I'm I'm always hoping, you know, the next stone I kick over on the beach will be be a diamond. So so I want that enthusiasm to to go to my readers because there's so many crazy circumstances in my book where people find cars. It's just like the latest trend in my book is a 
I haven't heard anybody comment on this. It's cars with the wrong body. Mm. For instance, uh, in my next book, there's going to be a Ferrari with with a Porsche body. Mm. So people probably rejected it back in Switzerland where it was. They probably said, well, I'm not going to buy that crazy car. That's a damn Porsche body on a on a Ferrari. But, but they didn't look at the Ferrari's history, you know, racing 250 LM. So now that it's been rebodied to a proper body, suddenly it's worth $10 million. So, <laughs> yeah. But I have five or six examples like that of a car. It was hit. They couldn't get the right body, so they put another body on, or else some customizer thought he'd put his own body on. But then after a while, somebody took that off. So it all goes down to the DNA of the car, the bones. Right. If the chassis is the right chassis with the right number, everything else doesn't matter. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was just at the Forest Grove Concours last weekend, and I met a man who had found in an old house a Porsche 9, late, early 70s 911T, and he said, you know, the car was a little rough, but it was all there, and he bought it for $7,000. Well, these T's are now going for 100000 plus, so in some cases, 200000 I've seen prices on T's if they're all original. And so a car like this, he could, you know, spend another 75000 and turn around and make some money if he wanted to or have a really nice car that's an all-original car. So you're right. Those cars are out there. Just keep your eyes open. Great, great perspective. And then another thing, there's one other thing that's happened in the car field since I started writing about the old cars. That's having a little slot in the auction called As Found. And I got a real kick out of the Gooding auction one year. They had a Lancia Aurelia Spider. I think they imported their own dirt to put on it. I mean, that car was <laughs> caked with dirt. There was another Lancia Aurelia Spider that sold for less, and that was real clean. But that car didn't have all the original parts on it. You know, maybe the fog lamps were from a different year or something. So, so the thing is, then also at Pebble Beach, I can't remember the Heritage class or something, they have one little uh, category for cars uh, unrestored. So then you can really appreciate what the years, what 50 years has done to this old Porsche. You could say, oh, yeah, that dent, they probably got that at the Pebble Beach Road Races of 53 or something. So the thing is, uh, you don't have to spend, like you were just talking about, the guy spending 75000 to restore that Porsche. He could have fun driving it just with the original patina which is a real fancy word for dirt, he could drive that and enjoy it the way it is and then still sell it for a huge profit if he has to send his kids to college. And uh, and that's a respectable category now is the as-found category, though, of course, for public safety, you'd want to uh, go through the mechanicals. Yeah, well, very good perspective. And speaking of perspective, here's a very introspective question for you, Wallace. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be and why? Uh, let's see. Well, I think a one car I like that I've never driven, I don't think I've sat in one, is like a Bentley Continental SC. That was a Bentley with a, I love these dashboards with lots of gauges in the wood, like a gentleman's drawing room in England, and, uh, and also like an airplane instrumentation. And yet it's got the elegance of a Bentley, and it's got speed, but it's understated. That's what I would like to think I would be, though maybe other people would say I'd be a 57 Chevy low rider. I don't know. <laughs> Very nice. That's why I love that question so much. 
So Wallace up next is the last lap, but before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsor. Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Okay, Wallace, we're back, and we're entering the last lap. This is where I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. Are you ready? Okay. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? I would say have a place to store it because <laughs> all those cars that I sold cheap, the Ferrari, the two gall wings, I sold them because I didn't have a place to store them when life throws some curves at you, curveballs yeah. at you. <laughs> Great advice. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has helped you along the way? Uh, well, I would say going back to what the advice that writer gave me is to be able to communicate to people kind of like, sh- I-, I like that word schmooze. I haven't looked up where it came from, but sometimes it's really amazing how you can meet somebody from cold. You don't know them. They don't know you, but within a minute you can be telling old stories. And uh, I think that's uh, a reporter's ability that I'm always working on to get the story. Great. Do you have a resource you think the Cars Yow listeners would really enjoy? Uh, well, I always go to an internet, uh, to all these car club forums, and I really enjoy how different they are. For instance, the Porsches, there's one called the Pelican Porsche Technical Forum, and you can choose 356 or 911. And I just love, uh, it's like the time I threw a hot dog to some alligators at the zoo, and at first they didn't notice it, but then they all smelled it and started fighting with each other. And sometimes on the forum, you can just throw in a little question. Like if I say, Hey, I think I found James Dean's Porsche speedster. And then to watch in the ensuing weeks as different <laughs> people come on the forums and, and fight to put in their two cents. Yeah. Forums are great. Pelican parts. Their forum is fantastic. The Rensport is another one. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of cool ones. That's a great advice. Wallace, is there one book that you believe our listeners would really enjoy reading, uh, other than your book, of course? Well, I think the Tom Wolfe book, uh, any of his books, really, especially the one about the astronauts, you know, the flying through space and all trip to the moon and all that was basically a story that could be told purely technical, you know, so many pounds of liquid oxygen, blah, blah. But he talked about the, the pilots' wives you know, and how they worried any moment their husband would get killed at testing before they ever got to make their moonshot. And I think uh, his books are a balance between, like, human interest and a technical thing. So that's what I'm always trying to 
work toward because I really uh, fall asleep when these uh, books go on and on about racing, you know. And then at Langhorn, he finished 28 laps, you know. I mean, I'm more into the, as I get older, I'm more into the personalities of the people that created the cars or the people that raced them than I am any technical details. Because now that the Internet's been invented, anybody can go to the computer and in two seconds find out what carburetor went in the 66 Shelby GT350. So we, don't, we hardly need to tell that anymore in a book. We're more interested in why the car was created. Well, listeners, you can find these links and resources at carsyad.com slash Wallace Weiss. And Wallace's last name is spelled W-Y-S-S. You can also find another great area on the Cars Yeah website, which is Guest Recommended Books, which has Wallace's recommendation of the right stuff and all the past 300-plus guests who've been here on Cars Yeah with real easy links to Amazon to make a purchase. All right, Wallace, we're up to the checkered flag. And this last question can be a real doozy. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, but you can't sell it to buy other cars with or fund any kind of school funding for kids going to college or anything like that, you're going to have to keep this car. But don't worry about the price because today I'll buy you whatever you'd like, even an old going. What would that one vehicle be and why? A Rolls-Royce Phantom 5 or 6 Lawn Delay. Because I, I've lately discovered in writing about it that the Lawn Delay is a very rare body style. Mm-hmm. And when I was up at the uh, Carmel, they have this parade through the streets of the cars that will be in the Concours. Yes, I the decided tour. that the people, I thought the people having the most fun, there was people driving, racing Ferraris and all that. But the people having the most fun in the whole parade were a couple ladies riding in the back of a Phantom 5 Lawn delay because they look like uh, the Queen of England, you know, waving to the crowds. And I thought, <laughs> if anything makes you feel like a celebrity for a day, it'd be a car like that. Of course, my problem is who would chauffeur it for me? <laughs> well, I'll drive it for you, all right? So that sounds okay. like we'll have some fun. That's the Pebble Beach Tour, which of course takes place on the Thursday before the Pebble Beach Concours. It's a great event because you can go and see all the cars leave the starting line over there. By the polo field, you can camp out along the way as they drive down the coast or of or over Loris Grade, and then of course you can go down into uh, Carmel on Ocean Boulevard and see all the cars pull in at noon. Walk around; it's a zoo, but it's really worth it. It's great fun. So, sounds like a great choice, my friend Wallace. You've taken me on a great ride today, and I've really enjoyed our stories. And I want to thank you for sharing your journey and this great book, Way Beyond Barn Find. The story behind Smokey Eunuch's Boss Mustang. Could you give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off in the sunset in that Rolls Royce? Well, I would say uh, never stop looking. I mean, even if you don't have a dime in the bank, uh, write down where you saw an interesting car because who knows, you might inherit a million dollars tomorrow and you can look in your list and say, oh, yeah, I got to go see if that car's still there yeah or maybe you have a friend who can go in on the deal with you and you can uh, have some fun with that car together and what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and your book way beyond barn finds uh well i'm writing a lot for a website called car build index and i almost have a new story there every couple days so that kind of gives them the latest direction that i'm going in my research Sometimes I'm writing about a car there before it goes in the book. Ah, fantastic. Well, listeners, again, you can find links to everything Wallace has shared with us today at carsyad.com. 
Just put Wallace in the search bar and his show notes page will pop right up. Wallace, thank you for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with me and the listeners. Until we talk again, I'll see you at the Italiano Concorso. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.